Welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that helps you translate Trump and understand Trump, understand the president. We're going to talk foreign policy with Michael Anton. He's a former senior national security official in the Trump administration. He understands Trump. I think he understands Trump foreign policy. We'll talk to him about that. At present, he's a writer and lecturer at Hillsdale College's Kirby Center here in Washington. Also, we'll jump into the mailbag and catch up on some of your emails. Feel free to email me, by the way. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. First, uh, what a disgrace here that we're facing the prospect of not confirming Mike Pompeo to be the Secretary of State. You've all heard this, but I'll say again, I said on TV the other night, one of the best resumes in America. Number one in his class at West Point. They don't just hand that out. They don't just hand that out. And uh, very high ranking at the Harvard Law School. Uh, Speaking of someone who graduated flat in the middle of the class, myself, uh, that's very impressive. Mike Pompeo, who's a really smart guy, really good guy, decent from the heartland. And the first time I can, I think in what a hundred years that the committee has not is not going to give a recommendation. That's the way it looks because you got all the Democrats opposed. Why? And then Rand Paul opposed because he thinks he's too warlike. The question I think it was Mark Short on the president's staff uh, asked uh, of uh, Rand Paul rhetorically was, uh, "How could you support John Kerry and not support President Trump's choice, Mike Pompeo?" Really a brilliant man. Look what he's done. I mean, he had the secret meeting with Kim Jong-un, mm-hmm. which is to set up the meeting the president's going to have with Kim Jong-un. So th- th- this is terrible. I mean, he was confirmed, I don't know, something like 70 to 30 for CIA director, and now he may not be confirmed. This is disgraceful on the part of the Democrats. I'm just putting down a marker right now on that one. Uh, the other thing I want to mention, I just found this kind of amusing, and this, I know I've gotten some people who've been critical of me on this, but I can't, I can't help it. I, I was pleased. I don't know if you saw this, Claude. wasn't the major story of the day, but they had a uh, uh, an initial uh, primary out in uh, Utah for the Senate seat. I don't right. Know if you saw yes. this, but Mitt Romney did not overwhelm <laughs> the other ten candidates. In fact, there was one guy who got more than he did. Mm-hmm. That's Dr. Mike Kennedy. Okay. He is a uh, family care practitioner. He's a doctor. He's a lawyer um, and a really good guy. I watched him on TV. Very humble, very modest. Call himself David and uh, to the Goliath of Romney and a Trump supporter. And he got like 50.8 and Romney got 49.2 or something. Uh, they're going to have a runoff. Now, people go to the convention are more in Utah, more conservative than the general voting Republican voting public. So it's an uphill battle for Kennedy, but still it was an interesting marker. Um, I used to be a Romney guy. I used to like Romney a lot. I just hated what he did with Trump. I just hated that, that he came out and slammed him and right. just was as nasty as he could be and said he's a fraud, he's a phony. Then he went courting to get the job with Trump, and he didn't get it because he's a, now he's a big supporter. And now he's hedging again about whether he'll support Trump. Well, we'll see what's good for Utah. Mike Kennedy, the guy who uh, outscored him in this first primary, said he'll support Trump. I mean, he'll you know he'll have his own judgment on things, but he basically supports the president. I'm am just sick and tired of Romney. I mean, the thing that got me was that Romney begged Trump for his endorsement, Trump's endorsement when Romney was running, just you know praised him up and down and begged him for it, and Trump gave him an endorsement for which Romney was grateful, and then Romney turned in trash. That's, see, that's personal lo- loyalty. Right. That just yeah. really, really bugs me. So I'm rooting for Mike Kennedy. Any Utah listeners have thoughts on this, please write us. We'd love to, we'd love to hear. Uh, okay, uh, an even more somber and serious note, uh, another marker. I think, you know, what the Democrats are doing is terrible. I think what the FBI done is terrible. 
I'm glad to see these efforts on the Republican side by Devin Nunes, who's a hero, Trey Gowdy, others. Um, and I think to bring to light all these things that have gone on, I think Comey is acting in a disgraceful manner uh, in his uh, in his book tour. And I, I think he could be in trouble for leaking documents that uh, arguably have classified information. Right. But I got to tell you, I think there's trouble for the president, and I'm worried about it with the Cohen stuff, the Michael Cohen. They get into those files. If there are financial transactions, bank stuff, uh, you know, um, real estate deals, uh, borrowing here, borrowing there. Again, I invoke my old friend, the columnist Robert Novak, rest in peace, who said, if the government comes after you, you're done. If they really come after you, they have unlimited resources, unlimited personnel, and that's even without a special counsel. Right. Now you got a special counsel and you got Southern District of New York. And, you know, what are the odds that in all the financial transactions that Donald Trump has done that something, some I, I wasn't dotted, some T wasn't crossed? I sure. mean, they're very high. You don't have to be a dishonorable cad to have made some mistakes and get get the uh, the echo chamber of the of the of the mass media. And they're going to look like mortal sins, like, uh, you know, like felonies. Right. And um, so I'm worried about it. And I just hope president has the right counsel. I've made a couple of recommendations there. Um, they weren't, um, they didn't work out for a variety of reasons. Uh, I see Rudy Giuliani's on the team, and that's and that's good because I think he's very smart. Yeah, I saw that last week. Yeah. And he's a good political head as well as a good legal mind. But uh, I hope I hope president really has a good team because I think what we're going into now is really serious for him. And uh, just uh, just let's just be aware. Let's track it. Meantime, should the efforts continue to you know get after the Democrats, get after this corruption, the FBI absolutely uh, get after the you know the dossier, the Democrats paying for it, all of those things. By the way, I think this DNC lawsuit uh, is uh, crazy uh, against uh, against the Trump administration, uh, and uh, I think it's going to backfire on them. But um, I'm very concerned, worried about this. And, you know, I let the audience know my feelings and my worries. And this is a legitimate worry. I don't know if you have a reaction. Well, I mean, we talked about it before where, you know, it's it's obviously not about one particular thing. They're just c- casting a wide net and just trying to find something that they can get the precedent on. And like you said, I mean, when you the thing is that they, they don't really have anything specifically that they're looking for. They're just trying to find something. Yeah, the, and the, the witch hunt language, it may be a witch hunt, but the really more accurate language is fishing expedition. Right, exactly. They're just casting lines all over the place. Exactly. And so uh, Mueller comes across something which he says, well, this doesn't involve collusion or obstruction, so I'll throw it to the uh, Southern District of New York. Mm-hmm. Okay, he throws it to the Southern District in New York, uh, and we'll um, and we'll see what happens there. But um, I'm just I'm, I'm concerned. I just I yeah, just don't, I, I, I'm not sure yet. The president has the kind of team around him in, in terms of legal team that he has to have, and I hope uh, hope they're recruiting as well as they can. That's my marker. Okay, a few more things. We now have this Toronto. Uh, horrible situation. You saw that, Claude, with the yeah, yeah. guy in the van. Yeah, yeah. Apparently not a terrorist thing, not linked to anybody, but a nut. This guy's a loon. Yeah. Reports of him uh, running around, uh, you know, in a dress with, with his guns. His father took his guns away and then gave them back to him. The father should never, ever have done that. Right. But, you know, when a guy is running around a dress, I, I don't mean to offend anyone in the LGBT community, but, you know, it's a little odd. Mm-hmm. Often, sure. And when he's got a gun and he's doing crazy behavior, this is again something we've talked about: the deinstitutionalization of people. 
you know, 90% of people who were in institutions for people with mental deficits, mental problems, uh, were released in the 80s, 90s. And we're seeing that. Um, this guy does not belong on the street, obviously. I mean, after the fact, it's easy to say. But I don't think it was that difficult to say before the fact, given this guy's record of behavior. Anyway, worth uh, worth thinking about, worth, uh, worth looking into. All right, we just had, it seems like a whole week of the French, doesn't it? I mean, it just seems like we are Frenched out here. I am Frenched out. I mean, enough already. I mean, I I like the French. They're allies, you know, with us, as long as we do most of the fighting. It's (laughs) kind of the agreement there. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate Lafayette, and they took our side in the revolution, but but we left hundreds of thousands of men on French battlefields. And um, I don't begrudge them that, although, you know, they might have... Some might have fought harder, okay? Um, But enough with the French already. I mean, I know the president likes Macron, and Macron likes the president, and they're hugging each other and all that, but I'm not sure I'd give up two full days of work at the White House for this, but so be it. No, people are going to say, Bill's up sick because he would have invited to the state dinner. Not at all. (laughs) If I saw the invitation before Mrs. Bennett, I would probably stash it. Uh Anyway. But uh, fine. I have an ally, and, you know, and as our friend Joel Farks has pointed out, Macron uh, imitates uh, uh, Donald Trump uh, in a lot of ways. Right, he pointed out last week, I think, on the podcast, right? That's right. That's right. So, okay. I mean, I can live with it, but enough. See ya. Bon voyage, as they say. So you're done with it, is what you're saying? I'm done with the French. (laughs) By the way, Melania did a great job. Everybody's saying she did a great job. She did a fabulous job. Beautiful woman. When will she start to get some of the coverage that, uh, one tenth of the coverage that, uh, what's her name got? What is her name? Michelle Obama. Yeah, we'll, we'll see about that. Uh, I wanted to read something to you, Claude, and to the audience. Investors Business Daily, and do this quickly. Uh, familiar, this is about the economies of states and our friend Joel Farkas. Maybe you'd send Joel this uh, Investors sure. Business Daily. It's from April 20, uh, and he may want to comment, and I want he's next on. There's been a vast, largely unheralded migration in the U.S. over the past decade, not because of weather or amenities, but because of taxes. Wallet Hub published a list of states ranked by tax burden based on property taxes, income taxes, sales taxes, as a share of personal income. Five states that impose the biggest tax burden on their residents are, in order, New York, Hawaii, Maine, Vermont, and Minnesota. You know what's missing, surprisingly? What's that? California. I was going to say. Yeah, where it is. It's in the top ten, though. Five states with the lowest tax rates. Alaska, Delaware, Tennessee, Florida, and New Hampshire. Uh, Right away, some obvious similarities between the groups. None of the ten highest tax states voted for a Republican president in recent elections. Okay. On the other hand, only three of the ten lowest tax states voted for Hillary Clinton. So the low-tax states tend to vote Republican. High-tax states tend to vote Democrat. But there's a far more important similarity, I'm still reading from the Investor's Business Daily, among high-tax states, one that should sound alarm bells. High-tax states are steadily losing population. Mm. Split the wallet hub list in half and look at net migration for all the states from 2007 to 2016 based on census data. What do you get? From 2007 to 2016... Nearly 5 million people migrated from high-tax states to low-tax states. Wow. And 5 million, uh, yeah, nearly 5 million people migrated from high-tax to low-tax. All but three of the 25 highest high-tax states lost population. Five biggest losers, New York, California, 
Illinois, New Jersey, and Ohio. And these are losses of New York, a million three, California, almost a million. Wow. At the other end of the spectrum, all but five low-tax states gained population. The states that got the most population gains, Texas, Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina, Washington. All told, the 25 high-tax states saw a net loss of 4.9 million people to states with lower tax burdens. You might conclude from all this uh, that the reason people leave is because of high taxes, and that would be right. But there's another reason they leave, and there's another reason that they're high-tax states. These tend to be poorly managed states, states in bad fiscal conditions. Poorly managed states try to force taxpayers to cover for their mistakes. Mm -hmm. They manage poorly, and so then they raise taxes to cover their, their sins, their problems. So consider all this the next time you hear someone claim the public doesn't care about high taxes or argues that higher taxes will improve people's lives. They do not improve people's lives, and people, it matters to people. I say this to you, a Maryland resident. Oh, absolutely. No, you're right. You notice the bite. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Of course you do. Okay. All right. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Show. Joining us now, Michael Anton. He's a former senior national security official in the Trump administration. At present, he's a writer and lecturer at Hillsdale College's Kirby Center. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, now, Michael, I, I should say I know him better as Publius Decius. May not be familiar to all of you, but you may remember the single best essay written about why we should vote for Donald Trump was written by uh, Michael Decius. Uh, Michael Decius. Michael. <laughs> so that happened too, I suppose, by Michael Anton with the pseudonym of Publius Decius. Who was Publius Decius? Well, there's more than one, actually. But I will say, while there's more than one, you know, they were all related, and they were sort of known for the same thing, which was sacrificing themselves for their country. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the original um, fought uh, the Battle of Vesuvius against the Latins, and this is all in Livy, Book 8. So he, he has a dream the night before, and, 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 and they take the augurs, you know, the Roman priests, and they, they determine that um, one side of this fight will lose the battle, and the, and the other side will lose a general. And so he determines that if necessary, he'll sacrifice himself. So they, they take, they have the battle, and at one point it's going badly. On his side, he dismounts from his horse and rallies his troops and is slain in the process, but the Romans win the battle. So, you know, I was mocked for having chosen this name but by people saying, well, you know, you didn't sacrifice anything. Uh, in fact, you were pseudonymous. You were hiding so that you could protect yourself. To which I said, well, you know, in a way, discretion is the better part of valor, right? I mean, one yeah, shouldn't, you know, charge into machine gun fire knowing you're going to die and not accomplish anything. On the other hand, I was risking a lot. I had a corporate career. I knew that the uh, my yeah. corporate masters would not be pleased. Um, they were not pro-Trump, to say the least. Yeah. Um, in the end, you know, it all did work out for me, in part because of a little bit of luck and a little bit of prudence. Um, but, you know, the idea that it was just completely risk-free, I think, was, is not true, is not fair. And the other point is, um, you, you know, there's there's reputational risk, and there still is, for being associated with the president, sure. oh, for, for identifying oneself with oh, his agenda. Oh, all of polite society essentially condemns you as a heretic or worse. Oh, um, and that'll be, that'll be with me and with a lot of other people kind of for the rest of our lives. So I think it's not fair to say that nobody made any kind of sacrifice. Um, you know, to stand up and say that this man had the right agenda for the times does... Um, incur a certain infamy, I think undeserved, but but nonetheless unmistakable, yep. that, you know, 
is does is tantamount to a sacrifice. I I agree. Uh, if I may, someone said of me, the author of the Book of Virtues has now committed professional suicide. My his endorsement yeah. of Trump, you know. So yeah. uh, you know, but it thinned down my Rolodex. I found out about friends, you know. Were, yeah, I did, are, too. I did, too. Yeah, I, yeah, so. I, I would say I didn't lose too many. I lost a couple. And I also I've become somewhat of a, of a Twitter target for a few people that I used to know well and sure. associate with, like to pick on me on Twitter. Um, the Lucky for me and sort of maybe disappointing for them is I just don't read it. So the only reason I know about it is because friends of mine will forward, you know, did you see what he said now? And I'll say, I don't care. Yeah, <laughs> like, good. I, just, good, I don't good. bother with this stuff. I understand. Good, good, good. All right. Well, let's I want to pick a fight with you. You are. I mean, the, the Livy, did you do that on your own or was that St. John's College in Annapolis? Um, actually, Libby was later. I didn't. Okay. I first read Libby when I was in Claremont in the mid nineties. Okay, um, Claremont, and steeped it in Machiavelli. Yeah, and then I read it again. I mean, I'm, I'm dipping into passages here and there all the time, but straight beginning to end. The first time I read it was around 1995, and the second time was I don't know the 2013-14 time frame when I was working on another okay. Machiavelli project. I think uh, you know. I people say, "What are your regrets?" I have a couple of regrets. I didn't serve in the military. I didn't meet my Mrs. Bennett, till I was uh, much older, I would have liked to have five kids uh, rather than just the two we have, though they're fine. Uh, and I wish I'd majored in classics rather than philosophy. It's all in those old books, isn't it? All of it. Everything. It is. There's yeah. so much, so much yeah, wisdom. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I had... Um I have a little collection of books that I call my office, and they're just they're my office volumes, and they're just the same books that I have at home, but extra copies in case I need to refer to them. And it's, you know, the, the Aristotle's Politics, Aristotle's Ethics, Plato Republic, La Laws, Machiavelli, Montesquieu, The Federalist, Locke, Second Treatise, basically, the, you know, just this handful. And somebody was looking at them once and said, uh, you know, what do you need these for in here? I said, I just, you never know when I, I need to refer to something and look it up. It's better to have my favorite edition rather than have to go on the web. I said, I said basically, <laughs> those books explain almost, you know, almost all of life, like 100%. And, and the guy who was a fairly sophisticated computer scientist and cyber expert paused for a second, and he said to me, eh, 80%. Eight. I said, that's fine. Right. 80% is still pretty good. I'll take for, 80, you know, yeah. Only about ten books. I'll take eighty. I'll take eighty. All right, I'll pick a I'll pick a fight with you here, maybe, because I w- I spoke at the inauguration of Edwin Delatra, who was a very close friend, when he became president of St. John's Annapolis, mm-hmm. and I said this is all fine. I love all these books, but I do think you need to study history. Boy, was I a public enemy number one at St. John's. Are you on their side or my side? I'm on your side. I've, okay. I've got you know reams of history clogging my shelves. Okay. It was something that, um, you know, my 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 true teachers. I'm not saying I didn't learn anything at St. John's. I'm saying my, my worldview and outlook was much more formed at Claremont okay. with Harry Jaffa, with Charles Kessler, oh, sure, and sure. and Larry Arn, and you know that whole yeah, group. Um, and starting from Jaffa, and starting even from Leo Strauss, Jaffa's mentor. I mean, Strauss is a big reader of history, and yeah, right. you know, um, Strauss pointed people to the ancient histories, to modern histories. He urged his students to read. Um, Churchill's history yeah, of uh, yeah. the Duke of Marlborough and other books. Jaffa was certainly insistent. I mean, Jaffa's own career yeah. was studying history to find, not just to understand what happened, but to find permanent lessons in it, which he did from the Re- American Revolution and the Civil War in particular. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in that. Yeah, no, I had a big fight that night. Uh, I gave my talk, and my guy was Tacitus. Uh, I regard his history's highest function to let no worthy action be uncommemorated. 
and to hold out the reprobation of posterity as a terror to evil words and deeds. Pretty good justification yes. for history, I think. Anyway, Absolutely. Anyway, good. Okay, well, as you can see, folks, we're dealing with a highly educated man. You used to be able to say educated man, but now you've got to preface it with several other words. A really well, highly educated man. Okay. Can we talk foreign policy? Sure. What should I be more worried about right now, North Korea or Iran? Hard to say exactly which to be more worried about. They pose a different kind of threat. You know, I think, let me put it this way, if the national security sort of bureaucracy's consensus view on North Korea is correct, um, that the regime prioritizes, you know, regime survival over everything, and it seeks its nuclear weapons program as an insurance policy um, in order to, you know, prevent any kind of invasion or destabilizing activities that might threaten the regime in Pyongyang. There's a minority view which holds that the regime is actually more, is bolder than that, uh, that yes, absolutely, it prioritizes its own survival, but it also has perhaps crazy, but also genuine ambition to reunite the Korean Peninsula on its own terms, and that its weapons program is a particular danger in order to you know, force that eventuality in some way or to deter any attempt to overturn, you know, a, you know, perhaps conceivably a conventional invasion north to south, and that would prevent uh, the international community, in particular the United States, from doing anything about it. I mean, uh, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think it's easy to say about which of those views is correct. Um, the American national security bureaucracy would be the first to tell you that it has very limited insight into North Korea, because this is not a country that you can spy on easily. It's not a country with, um, you know, open travel in and out where people can go in. It's not a country with a free press. So all the sources of information that we have to analyze the decision-making apparatuses and the thinking of other countries, very few of those exist in a place like North Korea. So there's a lot of guesswork involved. I guess that's a long-winded way of saying if answer if if view number two is correct that their ultimate ambition is to reunite the Korean Peninsula if necessary by force, then that's a very worrisome prospect. If view number one is correct that they prioritize survival above all else, then you know that's that's a less worrisome prospect. Iran, on the other hand, is a, is a far less dangerous country, just for no other reason that it has not developed nuclear weapons yet. Uh, but it also has been waging a relentless proxy war against America and American interests since the 1979 hostage yeah, crisis. Yeah. It sometimes results in American deaths and, and, and was frequently resulting in American deaths in the 2000s when Iran was consistently supplying militias and other fighters in Iraq with um, IEDs and other weapons in order to kill American sure, soldiers. Sure. All right. Uh, I'm more unnerved by Iran because, I, I mean, they're a bigger deal, right? Um, they have more influence in the world, it seems to me. Uh, That's true. And, and I, I don't know, I, you know, if they develop th- their capabilities, they will be a lot more threatening to us uh, by their own words. Well, they, well, I guess their own words are the same with North Korea than, than North Korea would be. It's, I mean, it's a bigger player, right? It is. I mean, look, it's a larger country population-wise. It has a much larger economy. It has North Korea essentially has no allies. It has okay. one sort of pseudo-partial ally into China. So, but, you know, from China's perspective, I don't want to give the Chinese a complete free pass here, but from China's perspective, North Korea is like a problematic nephew. They're in the family. You, you can't 
cast them off, but you know, you certainly wish they would behave a lot better and differently. Yeah, I want to get um, to China and Russia in a bit, but I, let's stay. Whereas here. Iran has real allies, real satellites, and it has serious relationships with countries that are U.S. allies. You know, this is this is a consistent problem for the United States in that, you know, uh, Britain, France, and especially Germany. And other countries all want to do business with Iran. They don't see Iran through the same lens that we see Iran through. Um, so it's, it's actually encouraging, if I can just pick up a bit on the news of the day, because we're the day yeah, after please. the state visit please, from please. the president of France. It was encouraging to hear some pretty tough talk from the president of France yesterday with President Trump and Monday. Um, but, you know, there's, a, there's a, I think, a deeper recognition among some of the Europeans that Iran, while, yes, you know, there are European businesses that want to keep and expand commercial ties with Iran, you know, le- the leadership of these countries is increasingly aware and concerned about uh, Iran's okay. really uh, bad influence tear, in the world. Tear up the deal? Well, I like, uh, honestly, I'm a partisan of what the president, the path the president has chosen, which is fix it. Okay. Give the Europeans a chance to join him in fixing it. Okay. And, and if they don't, tear it up. Right. The problem is, the deal was a disaster on so many fronts, but let me just mention two. The United States became aware, we didn't discover it, but others alerted us to it, that Iran was illicitly enriching uranium. This is in 2002. The Bush administration spent an enormous amount of time and hard work building a multilateral sanctions regime against Iran. It, to some extent, had to drag the Europeans kicking and screaming to join this because these European countries, especially Germany, didn't want to do it because there was too much business to be lost if they did it. And the other point to understand here is that we can sanction Iran all we want, and we do, but it doesn't, it's not that painful because the United States hasn't had diplomatic relations and it's done very little business with Iran since 1979. So further U.S. sanctions... The Iranians can, you know, almost shrug off. It's like saying, well, you already do no business with us, so now you're going to do even less. Like, who cares, right? Losing access to European markets, the European financial system, is a serious problem for the Iranians. So the Bush administration put massive pressure on Iran that the Obama administration came in sort of determined to unravel. That's what the JCPOA, the so-called nuclear deal, is all about. Um, it was about unraveling those sanctions, which the Europeans, you know, they never really were enthusiastic about in the first place. They did it because of moral pressure from the United States, from the Bush administration. All right. So they were delighted to have a new administration come into power and say, we, we're willing to do a deal with Tehran. And, and if that deal can be done, you know, we'll essentially give you a pass to unravel these sanctions or lessen these sanctions. That's what happened. So something, a a sanctions regime that was patiently, painstakingly built with much difficulty over almost a decade was unraveled by this deal. That's tragedy number one. Tragedy number two is that the deal front-loaded all the benefits to Iran. Yeah. And we're never going to get any of that back. The money that was turned over to them, the assets unfrozen, that's never coming back. Mm -hmm. So whenever, if if it turns out that we have to get out of the deal, the president chooses to get out of the deal, um, it does give us some additional tools to use against Iran, but all the benefits that were front-loaded are gone forever and have accrued to them, and that's another tragedy. So if the president can get what he wants, and Macron left the door open to, to, to working with him on this, you know, he can fix the flaws of the deal. No sunset clause, covers ballistic missiles, covers other uh, malign activities, um, you know, puts in a real toothy inspections regime on the Iranians. And he said in, Jan- in January that if he got all that, he'd be willing to stay in. Um, We'll see if we're going to get all that. Now, we don't know, right? There have been people who have been negotiating uh, on this. But we should get get all that or most of that or tear it up. Yeah, that's that's the president's position, and and, and I agree. Look, the deal as it is 
it doesn't even it doesn't really even work. It's just a you know the, there's a famous line when Ferdinand Foch, you know the hero of the Marne and, and of World War One in France, saw the terms of the Versailles Treaty in 1919. He said, "This is not peace. It's an armistice for 20 years." One of the most prophetic uh, quotes uh, in, uh, in the wow. history of mankind, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, the, so the, the, the Iran deal is not it's not peace. It's just a pause for yeah. 10 years. Okay. It basically says so. The Iran. Yeah, I love this well too. Been. This is a rhetorically. This is rhetorically shows you how cynical the whole situation is. The Iranian position all along was, we don't want nuclear weapons, and we're not developing nuclear weapons. But in the next breath, they will say, if you know this deal is the cornerstone of peace, and if you back out of it or jeopardize it in any way, we'll go right back to our nuclear work. Yeah. In parenthesis, the work that we always denied we were ever doing right. and that we had any interest in doing. Great. So which is it, Mullahs? Got it. Got it. Okay, I want to I move on to Russia quickly. Again, the question is the, the word overused, misused, existential. My life, my security, my kids' security. I asked about North Korea. I asked about Iran. Russia, how serious a threat is it to me? I, less than other threats, I think. I think okay. Russia is a malign actor. They do support America's adversaries and enemies. They did monkey in our election. I don't think particularly effectively, but you know, others may disagree with that. Um, and they, you know, they're, they're up to a lot of you know, no good and kind of dirty tricks. Are they the same existential threat that we faced in the Cold War? I don't think so. Yeah, they have right. the same nuclear arsenal, you know, comparable to ours and far greater than any others, including the Chinese nuclear arsenal and, and some others out there, which which makes them potentially a dangerous country. And yeah, well, why not? Else you may say, if they're, if they're why not? more powerful than the Chinese, and they have a nuclear arsenal equal to ours. They have a more powerful nuclear arsenal than, than the Chinese. I think their conventional uh, strength is, is, is lower, and the Chinese continues to rise. Um, you know, I mean, what, what, what are the Russian, really, their national interests? They want to be seen as a great power on the world stage. Okay. They want to be, they want to dominate their near abroad, right? They want to sort of get back as much of the prestige and influence that they lost in 1989-91 time frame as, as they can, as practicable. And they're never going to get it all back, obviously. Um, but that, that's, I, I think, their but, goal. But, but in terms of, in their heart of hearts, do they want to destroy us? Maybe not. Maybe they don't care about that. Is that right? Um, I doubt it. I think they'd like to see us humiliated in a lot of ways. I think sure. they'd like to see us retrench. I think they'd like to see NATO broken up. I think they'd like to see a kind of isolationist spirit resume in the United States and, and Europe left to, to, to fend for itself in, in, in Russia's shadow, which would be much more difficult for the Europeans. But, you know, the Europeans, the Europeans often don't help themselves these yeah, Russia. No, they complain and they say they're afraid and, you know, the United States needs to stand together. But then, you know, Germany and other countries do these deals. gas pipeline deals with Russia yeah, that sure put them do. completely at the Russians' mercy Absolutely. for energy in a way that, you know, Absolutely. any observer on this side of the Atlantic would have to say is seriously unwise. But back to what I was just asking in their heart of hearts, they don't want to destroy us like the mullahs do, right? I doubt it. Okay. Yeah, no, there's there's definitely the mullahs and other, you know, ideological proponents of, of, of radical Islam. Yeah, they want to they want to destroy the whole West, and they're open okay. about that. Okay. I, I don't. I, I want to get I want to get some of those other players in, the, in a minute, but let's go to China. Uh, do they want to destroy us in their heart of hearts? They want to compete with us and overwhelm us, right? I think they want us to replace us as the number one economy in okay. the world. Yeah. They want to kick us out of the Western Pacific and of East and of East Asia, so that they can completely dominate that region, which they think, you know, they have some kind of supreme right to do. Mm-hmm. Destroy us? No. Um, I think we're too useful to them, at least in, at least in the in the short and medium term. That you know, that our destruction would be. Bad. First of all, they'd never okay. get they'd never get paid back right. all the money that right. <laughs> right. 
right. Dave Valentes. Second of all, yeah, we got to remember um, we hold the cards. We're the ones yeah. who owe them money, right? Yeah, that's right. A Chinese economy without the U.S. market is dead okay. in the water. Okay, but if they get that domination um, uh, that you described without attacking us or any military action, how harmful is that to us? I think it's I think it's potentially um, gravely harmful because the contours of the world order will change in a way that's unfavorable to U.S. interests. You know, I mean, if they control shipping in the South China Sea, if they essentially control all the all the maritime uh, com- commercial choke points in East Asia, they can use that as a weapon against us that could be very, very harmful to our economy and to our interests. Aren't they also getting an awful lot of stuff, uh, natural stuff, uh, minerals, et cetera, uh, out of Africa? Aren't they... Yes. All over Africa, doing, taking up the yes. world's natural it, resources. Yes, it's a yes, it's a it's a resource poor economy in a lot of ways, and and the industrial program that they're on requires an enormous number of rare earth minerals that they can't find in their own on their own soil that they've got to acquire from elsewhere, which has resulted in a kind of policy of neo-colonialism in certain parts of the world, well, especially in Africa. Last specific topic, and then a general question, Michael, if I can. Uh, global war against Islamist terror. I mean, you just brought it up, but I mentioned the mullahs. But it seems to have receded some, at least in the headlines. It's still going on, right? They're still at war with us. Uh, all yeah, these guys. Well, partly it's receded because because we're winning. I we're mean, winning. ISIS right? Is, we are winning. ISIS is are we annihilating them? To use Mattis's mm-hmm. phrase, uh, I think so. I mean, I don't think we have annihilated them. We've taken control of territory and resources in a way that they essentially don't have a caliphate, a state anymore. But they have a lot of. Uh, they have a lot of bad guys on the ground in Syria, in Iraq, and elsewhere that want to do bad things. But their power is diminished by not having access, okay. no longer having access to population centers, resources, oil wells, and things like that. All right. Okay. There it is. I mean, I, maybe I forgot some major threat or major power. But um, are we up to these challenges? Is this team up to these challenges? President up oh, to yeah. these challenges? We are. Absolutely. And we can keep track of these. We can you know, count and... And, uh, oh, yeah. And, and, oh, sure, and sure. Dance look, at the same I think, time. Look, I think yeah. the, the, the U.S. went through a period of strategic drift for a while in a couple of ways. You know, some were endemic to the Obama administration. Others spanned several administrations. I mean, China is a great example. It was, there was a bipartisan policy for about three decades to essentially treat China as a rising great power like any other and, and you know, now have the policy that, well, if we welcome them into the club, they'll behave like a good member of the club. They consistently didn't, and we kept uh, chugging on with the policy anyway. This administration has finally uh, stopped that and, and taken, taken the threat uh, from China, you know, the economic threat, certainly, and the potential security threat down the road has taken it seriously. So this, this, you know, this administration deserves credit for that. This administration certainly deserves credit for putting more pressure on North Korea than any previous administration ha- has, at least in a long time. I think there, there was a period um, when... Um, the Bush administration got very, very tough with North Korea after North Korea broke the agreed framework in 2002 and announced um, that it, too, had a secret side nuclear program. Um, and that pressure, you know, the Bush administration decided to go a different path in the second term, in President Bush's second term, and eased the pressure and worked on engagement. And, you know, we saw the result. The result is they started testing nuclear weapons in 2006, um, uh, you know, and they kept up with that program since. And, and right. the, it right. took until this administration came on and that, that real hard pressure was finally applied to North Korea again. And do you think, just to, to close, do you think uh, we'll have that meeting? 
between the president. I think it's more likely than not. I mean, remember, this is a meeting that the North Koreans asked for. This is not a meeting that that the United States asked for. So I would just, the very simple way I would put it is, if we don't have that meeting, it'll be because the North Koreans don't want it, not because President Trump doesn't want it. Listen, this is great. I uh, hope this, uh, you would regard this as a down payment. We'd love to have you back. Very thoughtful, very very helpful to the audience and to me. And uh, I hope they still have your phone number, and I hope you have their phone number, the White House. I do. Okay. hope they okay. call on you. We'll call on you again. Thank you, Michael Anton. Thank you. Okay. That was Michael Anton, former senior national security official in the Trump administration, and at present a writer and lecturer at Hillsdale College's Kirby Center. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Claude and I realized we hadn't checked emails for a while, so uh, we want to catch up on a few of these and uh, read a few of them over the air, and I'll give you my response. Love to hear from you. I ask for your response to these uh, discussions and interviews and commentaries and rants, as I call them, when I go off on my own. But uh, great to hear from you. So what do we got, Claude? And by the way, if anybody wants to email, they can just go to, they can send an email to BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com to send in those emails. So uh, Nicole Schultz wrote in, here's the subject line. It says, more, more, more. More, more, more. More than the greatest. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) She says, uh, I would love at least another episode a week. Uh, let your assistant help if it's too much. He's great, too. So maybe she's <laughs> it's an invitation for you to freelance. Exactly. Yeah. So we'll get, get a little, uh, what's that guy's name on Morning Joe? Who, Willie, and he starts to right. take, gets his own show. Is that we're after? <laughs> well, we're doing what we can. Um, I got about four or five other jobs, Nicole, right. uh, which I got to keep up with. And uh, a lot is going on. I wish I could tell you about my day. Oh, I'll tell you a little bit about my day today. We're going to do a long interview with a very distinguished person. Can't tell you his name now, but uh, we'll be doing it and putting it out later on. Then I'm going uh, downtown and uh, seeing Secretary of Commerce uh, Wilbur Ross on a business thing that I'm trying to help some people with, and, and uh, very interesting uh, there. Then uh, I got a call with Senator Thune about some education projects in rural America, and um, that's that's going to be interesting. And, uh, of course, i got a whole podcast to do. So I, I stay pretty busy, Claude, don't you think? I stay pretty busy. Yes, you stay extremely busy. Right. Was that, is that, was that it from Nicole? Just That's all from more? Nicole. She just wants more. Okay. Well, maybe you should, you know, you should just sneak on the mic yourself one of these days without me watching. <laughs> see what happens. Just release the podcast myself. Star is born. Yeah. There you go. Okay, well, yeah. the public demands it, so maybe I will. Uh, public, oh, there it is. There's an excuse <laughs> when I catch you. I catch you. Yeah, okay. So here's another email, um, uh, a bit serious uh, than, than the, the last one. Alan from Washington State, he says, Hi, Bill, I'm enjoying your podcast and the diverse topics you cover. I would love uh, to encourage you every once in a while uh, to one of your other areas of depth. He's talking about drug policy. Uh, he shares with us that he has a 23-year-old who started using a lot of marijuana at the age of uh, 14 or yeah. 15. Yeah. Uh, he says now he has uh, mental uh, illness, diminished mental uh, capacities and capabilities, low motivation, low drive. Uh, he's living at home, struggling to uh, progress and move forward in life. Uh, he goes on to say uh, he was found to have a very high IQ at a young age, attended a private school uh, for middle school and high school. Uh, then he began to falter off uh, when he went to college, uh, completed a little under two years, spanning four colleges and universities, while his former peers have long left universities, got good jobs, married, etc. 
Uh, he says, I understand the priority put on uh, the uh, opioid epidemic uh, as the body counts are profound. But I recall you saying very briefly many weeks ago that marijuana is clearly a gateway drug as well as uh, is doing increasing damage. Uh, if you could consider some focus shows every month, uh, every four podcasts or so that will cover drug issues, not just opiates, uh, but also some analysis on uh, the relative success, failure of medical marijuana and legalized marijuana. I sure would appreciate it. And he closes by saying, uh, and honestly, some spirited disagreement would be welcome since it seems the two sides on this topic choose not to debate directly, which is a big shame. I hope you consider it. And again, that's Alan from Washington State. That's a very thoughtful uh, email from Alan. I can feel the pain there. Um, Yeah, a few things. First of all, we do devote some time to that issue. And right away, I would say if, uh, and and Claude, help me here, if uh, if Alan hasn't heard it, he needs to hear the interview we did with Larry Cudlow. Oh, yeah, with Larry Cudlow. How does does he pull that up? Just go to the uh, website, BillBennettShow.com, and he can look under uh, past episodes. He can scroll down and find it. Larry Kudlow. Larry Kudlow, who, of course, is the president's uh, chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors now, um, regards himself as an addict. He wrestled with cocaine. He won, uh, but he would say he's still wrestling. Uh, Once an addict, always an addict. Uh, That's what a lot of people say. And uh, the 12-step method, he still goes to 12-step meetings. And he commented in this interview, and I hope Alan can listen to it, about the number of young people who come in. And they started with marijuana. Of course, it's a gateway drug. Does everyone go through the gate? No, not everyone who smokes marijuana moves on, but many do. And if you talk to people who are using other substances, almost always they started with marijuana. But I'll tell you, it's enough to start with marijuana and to finish with marijuana because it can have the effects that Alan so eloquently and sensitively, touchingly lays out in his email. A loss of attention, loss of memory. Uh, loss of focus, motivation, a motivational syndrome is part of it. And um, his son here started at the age of onset, 14, 15. By the way, if you can keep young people off of these drugs, off of marijuana till age 21, you're way ahead of the game. Wow. The odds then are just way in your favor. So it's that uh, it's that early onset. Marijuana dulls the brain. There's no question about it. It affects motivation. It affects focus. It affects memory. It affects attention span. Think about young people in school and what are the things sure. you want. You want all of those, all of those things. The medical marijuana thing was one of the great uh, con jobs of all time. Uh, there are some people who can be helped with pain by marijuana, but they could also be helped by not smoking marijuana. They could take Marinol, sure. which has the hyper, uh, which has the active ingredient, without the smoke and without the problems associated with the smoke. Uh, but there are other things you can take for the pain as well. But the marijuana people, the uh, legalization people, realized once they made the sale on medical marijuana, um, it got into the it got into the the mainstream, and there they were in Colorado. For example, they're always going around with these statistics about the fact that since they legalized recreational marijuana, not medicinal, there hasn't been that big an increase. Well, the reason there hasn't been that big an increase is because when they had medical marijuana, everybody got in on it. Right. The most typical uh, uh, doctor's note for uh, medical marijuana was given to an 18 to 25-year-old male suffering from back pain. Wow. awful lot of males yeah. suffering from back pain, <laughs> 18 age, to 25-year-old yeah. in Colorado. So they'd already hooked a generation. And medical marijuana was the Trojan horse, the stalking horse here, um, to get the whole thing. I think the country's really just a little crazy on this point. 
um, and that uh, this uh, kind of wholesale rush to marijuana is going to make us stupider. Uh, and um, I, you know, last week we talked about the NAEP scores being flat. This is one of the reasons. Uh, increased use of marijuana. The uh, main reason is, I think, what goes on in schools, but what goes on in the child's life is, is very important, too. Um, grab a hold of that kid, Alan, and just stop him in his tracks. If he's got, you got to stay with him or move in with him or have him move in with you, do so. You got to save this kid because uh, this sounds like the, the wrong track, and uh, this is a this is a bad business. Listen to the Cudlow interview, and we'll be doing more on this uh, more on this issue. You might be seeing something of an initiative too that uh, we're trying to organize at the present time. Right, and there was another interview we did with the My Pillow. Uh, yes, CEO, correct. Yes. He, Mike Lindell. Mike Lindell, and he talked about his struggles uh, with. He talked about his struggles well, with like, drugs. Yeah, yeah. yeah, extraordinary story. Mike Lindell, the guy who's everywhere on TV with My Pillow. I saw him the other day. Yeah, on, on TV. TV. Oh wow, well, you saw him three yeah. or four times a day. Yeah, <laughs> and I see his product every night. I use I use My Pillow, and. Uh, like it very much, but he struggled with drugs. He's a winner. He got out, and you hear the stories of people who said, well, I conquered it, and I got out, and I made a lot of myself. You don't hear the stories of people who don't make it out. Right. And remember, it's not good enough to get into this problem and then say you can solve it with treatment. Success rate for treatment is about 20%. About four out of five people who get into these drugs do not get out of them. Don't go in in the first place. Protect that child. Yeah. All right. Uh, so we've got another email from Barry. Uh, and speaking of the Larry Cudlow interview, uh, Larry just says uh, he just caught up on some of the older episodes of the podcast. The interview with Larry Cutlow was incredible. Uh, his story of breaking free from uh, alcohol and drugs uh, is something I never knew, and it's quite powerful. I enjoy every show. Keep up the great work. And then he signs at Barry. He says, always pray and never give up. Uh, Luke eighteen one. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, by the way, I, I don't know what. Yeah, I know what made me think of it is Luke. Is we met uh, my son and I met with some uh, Libyans, uh, okay. some of the good guys, the guys who were fighting the Islamists over there, the radical Islamists, uh, and this is the, the current government. And uh, one of the first things they told us is they said, you know, Libya is one of the few th- countries in the Bible named as Libya that's whose name has not changed. It was Libya then and it's Libya now. I'll check that out. Second thing is it is the birthplace of St. Mark mm-hmm. and Simon Cyrene. We'll check go. that out. We'll check that out. <laughs> that's what they said, so we'll see if that's true. And so basically Luke 18, 1, uh, okay. says, um, and this is the New Living Translation version, says, One day Jesus told his disciples a story to show them they should always pray and never give up. Okay, always pray and never give up. That's exactly what he said. It was the story of the persistent widow. You got the quick uh, Bible reference there? Yeah, so I have the Bible on my phone. Sometimes you're sitting around and... Uh, you need something to read, and so. <laughs> All right, a little counseling here to the boss. That's yeah, good. I like the that. Bible. All right, yeah. stick that Bible on my phone for me. Wait. Oh yeah, that's sure. Good. Technology. Thank you. Who is that from? Uh, that's from Barry. Yeah, thanks, Barry. Thanks very much. And we have another email from uh, Mike Gallagher. Not that Mike Gallagher. I don't think. Mike Gallagher, uh, Gallagher, the radio host? I don't think that one. Mike Gallagher, the Marine congressman from I Wisconsin? I don't think that one either. This one's from uh, Abington, PA. All right, well, how does he identify himself? 
uh, as Mike Gallagher, the real one. Oh, the real one. Okay, now you yeah. should have said that. Yeah, the real one. Okay. <laughs> All right, pretty popular name. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, so he says, Dear Mr. Bennett, I miss you on the uh, regular radio show you had, which I listened to faithfully here in Philadelphia on 990 AM. Yeah, Remember sure. Philadelphia? I do. And we got some guys there. Um, your your replacement is okay, <laughs> right. but you were the best in how you handled guests, especially that liberal fellow uh, with the deep voice from Ohio. I'm trying to remember. No, John. he was from Kentucky. John from Louisville. Yeah, John. <laughs> the professor, yeah, he used to call, yeah. Oh, we love John from yeah, I wonder yeah. if he listens to the podcast. John, if you're out there, listen to yeah, the podcast. Yeah, let us know. Let's hear from yeah, you. Call, call with your deep voice. Yeah, yeah. go ahead. Uh, he used to get on my nerves, always defending Obama. <laughs> uh, then he says, I will always remember that uh, on one of your Christmas Eve programs, you read my email, which concerned the Christmas day I spent in Korea in 1961. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Yeah, sure. He says, I was so lonely and homesick until orphans from Star of the Sea Home uh, arrived with the good nuns for a Christmas party at our service club. Uh, there was one little girl. I, I remember this story. There was one little girl who just took uh, to me so much that it really brightened my day. And I realized that God had sent her to me uh, that day to wipe away my loneliness. I recall how she cried when she left us on the bus. Thank you for that. It made my Christmas that year. I remember that email. Yeah, that's, no, that's, that's great. great Good. Now, who's that? That's from my, Mike Gallagher. The real Mike the real Gallagher. Mike Gallagher. Yeah. we got three of them now floating around <laughs> our world. That's good. All right, let's leave it there. We'll get into more emails on the next episode. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett and like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett and feel free to email the show. I would love to hear from you. Wouldn't we love to hear from folks, Claude? Absolutely. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. We're going to prove it. We proved it today, I think. By uh, yeah, we've got plenty more to read. Think so. we got a lot more coming in. Keep them coming. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. Catch up with you next week.